All right, so we're going to tackle this whole chapter this morning. Um, so we're back in our study through the gospel according to Mark, and um, we've had a little bit of a hiatus because of Advent and some other things, um, our purpose and value series, and um, Chris did a great job of uh, bringing us back up to speed and walking us through the end of chapter 11, I'm sorry, end of chapter 12 last week, and this, thank you, good to be back, yep, we were out in California, did a wedding for some family friends, um, so we're going to walk through chapter 13, so if you're not there, go ahead and turn back to Mark 13. Um, so before we dive into this chapter, just want to remind you all that you are going to die and this world is going to end. So aren't you glad you came to church um, this morning? So listen, actually, no matter what you believe, I mean, maybe we believe pretty similarly here in this room, but really just about everybody believes those two things, that they're going to die and the world's going to end. There's plenty of people that you're going to rub shoulders with this week, family members, friends, coworkers, neighbors, that they believe they're going to die and Maybe for them, it's they're going to simply cease to exist, and then at some point, you know, maybe who knows how long the sun's going to burn out, and the planet and all life on the planet is just going to be frozen and annihilated. So those two themes actually fill our cultural imagination. Have you ever noticed this? I mean, death fills TV and movies and books and video games and poetry and art, and the end of the world does as well. How many dystopian future movies and TV shows, apocalyptic, you know, actually there's a Wikipedia article that has apocalyptic movies, and it's by year. And I, I mean, I just, it's like this endless list. Why is that? Apocalyptic fears. Movies like A Quiet Place, One and Two, Contagion, any zombie movies. The Marvel movies, you know, there's alien powers threatening to destroy planet Earth. Even kids' movies get in on it. Wally, -E, that one's a little bit older. But the Lego movie, ordinary Lego construction worker, um, thought to be the prophesied special, is recruited to join a quest to stop an evil tyrant from gluing the Lego universe into eternal stasis. It's the end of the world. The Lego movie, too, the second part. The, okay, that was part of the title. Um, Five years after the first movie, the citizens of Bricksburg are now facing a huge new threat. Lego Duplo invaders from outer space wrecking everything faster than they can rebuild. Character Finn has rebuilt Bricksburg as Apocalypseburg, and one of the characters has visions of an impending Armageddon. I actually said that correctly. Um, so we are fascinated by these things, and we fear these things. We don't want to know and we can't help but want to know. We don't want to look, and we can't look away. And yet, ironically, the norm for most people, Christians included, is that we live most of our lives without those two great realities in conscious view. We don't want to think about our death, and we don't really want to think about the return of Jesus. So how should we live? Oblivious to our death and the end of the world? Or maybe obsessed about the end of the world? James Edwards, one of the commentators that um, we've quoted from quite a bit in this series, he says, the mischief caused by the misuse of eschatology not least in contemporary America, has resulted in a virtual eclipse of eschatology in the life of the church. This unfortunate set of circumstances, both its abuse and its subsequent neglect, has weakened the church rather than strengthened it. Have you seen either of those? The obsession, you know, prophecy conferences and charts and, you know, there's a little picture of Hitler, you know, over the Antichrist. And I mean, anybody seen this kind of stuff? Or there's like the reaction, well, that's a bunch of craziness and it's like never really crosses your mental radar. Either hyper-focused on end times, you know, connecting the dots to current events all the time, or it's 
off the radar. Um, so again, this kind of stuff happens all the time. This terrible earthquake in Turkey and Syria, right? Just recently happened. Almost 50,000 confirmed dead with surely more to follow and we should weep with those who weep and we should be praying and Lord have mercy. But sure enough, you know, maybe some of you have heard the name Joel Rosenberg. If you don't, it's okay. But he's written lots of books that try to figure out, you know, all the different things that are going on in current events and how it ties to Revelation and whatever else. So tonight on the Rosenberg Report, I focus on the apocalyptic earthquakes, apocalyptic earthquakes in Turkey. What does Bible prophecy say about why God sends earthquakes and are bigger quakes coming? So, again, I don't know how much to go into this. Like, even somebody like, I'm going to step on some toes here. I love you. Um, even somebody like David Jeremiah, okay? Solid Bible teacher, and I, I don't mean any disrespect to him. But sometimes he has a tendency to really try to connect a lot of dots, okay? So, I actually was just curious what he might say, and I looked him up online, and, you know, one of the first things you see is a blog, co blog post, Becoming a Cashless Society, a Financial Sign of the End Times. And he answers questions like, why is our cashless trend significant? And he says that technology is advancing toward the mark of the beast. And so he offered this End Times prophecy chart, and I typed in my email and, you know, received the End Times prophecy chart. And then I've signed up for his emails now, and so the first email comes, and one of the links was, where do we go from here? And it says, never before has end times prophecy aligned so closely with current events. In this interview, David Jeremiah discusses 10 prophetic events unfolding around us. So again, I'm, David Jeremiah preaches the gospel faithfully. I'm not trying to blast him. What I am saying is, um, when would that not be true? If history is linear, like, and we're heading toward the end where Jesus comes back and he wins and it's over, then every day is a day closer to the return of Christ. So we're always going to be, you know, never before have we been so closely aligned with, you know, prophetic events unfolding. But what's the purpose of regularly frothing up apocalyptic curiosity and concern? That's more the question. So, we can have a fascination with these things and try to connect more dots than maybe we have information for. I mean, which is not new. In the Reformation times, the Pope was the Antichrist. Well, that was obviously wrong, even though there was lots of godly people back then. And then we can also fall on the, off the horse on the other side, kind of blowing it off and never thinking about these things. So I don't think that either of those options is what Jesus would have us do. So let's look at Mark 13 and see how he commands and counsels us. All right, so here we go. Point number one, wonder blocks or stumbling blocks. And as Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. So some of the disciples were Galilean fishermen, right? It'd be kind of like somebody coming from Podunk, Pennsylvania. I don't think that's a real place, but you know what I'm talking about. Um, I, was, I grew up in Pennsylvania, so I'm not, I can do Punxsutawney even. So if somebody comes from Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, and they walk into New York City, and they're like, you know, gawking at the skyscrapers, right? kind of like what's going on here. But we should actually note that Herod's temple truly was a wonder. And when I say wonder, like a real wonder, like seven wonders of the world sort of wonder. It wasn't one of the seven wonders, but maybe just as much, if not more so, amazing and beautiful as some of the others. So Herod doubled the size of Solomon's temple when he built his temple. By Jesus' day, it had been under construction for 50 years, and it still wasn't complete. Josephus reports that some of the stones were 50 
no, I'm sorry, 40 cubits in length. That's almost 60 feet. No block that size has been found in the existing foundation, but stones north of Wilson's Arch uh, measure 42 feet long. I actually have also read 45 feet long, 11 feet high, 14 feet deep, and weigh over a million pounds. The magnitude of the Temple Mount and stones used to construct it exceed in size any other temple in the ancient world. How in the, nobody actually knows how in the world they transported these things and set them into place. Just start to think about how you would do that without cranes and all kinds of stuff. A million pounds, okay? So it was more than twice the size of the Acropolis in Athens. The perimeter was almost like a mile, almost exactly a mile around. But Jesus responds and says to this disciple who asked this question, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And if you know the history, you know that from A.D. 66 to A.D. 70, and then actually a little bit after to 73, um, Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. Titus, the son of Emperor Vespasian, led the Roman destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. So the disciples thought that the destruction of the temple would be like the end of the world, literally. So for them to hear of the destruction of the temple sounded like the prophecy of the final battle. So they're asking. Verse 3, as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, across the valley looking at the temple. Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? So this chapter is known as the Olivet Discourse. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. It's because it's the discourse that happened from the Mount of Olives. Olivet Discourse, okay? But before we walk through it, we just should remember a little bit of context here, okay? So Chris Elliott did a Excellent job bringing us back into our Mark series last week by covering the end of chapter 12. And you'll remember that Jesus' public ministry is drawing to a close. He tells the disciples repeatedly as he's heading back into Jerusalem that he's going to die at the hands of the religious leaders. He enters Jerusalem. He enters the temple. He begins overturning tables, money changers. Remember the cleansing of the temple? Instead of it being a house of prayer for all the nations, the temple would become a den of robbers. And then we see that visual parable of the cursed fig tree that's a picture of Israel under the judgment of God. So the cleansing of the temple obviously got the attention of the religious leaders, the temple leaders. They approach him one group after another, trying to catch him in his words. And he just deftly responds each time. Nobody can catch him in his words. He turns it on them each time. And then finally, they just give up. You know, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And then he has a question of his own, which Chris covered last week from Psalm 110. So then after warning the people of the scribes, you know, he then is observing in the temple area, the poor widow puts in all she had to live on and he commends her, right? So the Jesus and the disciples then leave the temple area, go to the Mount of Olives, and we have our text. So the reason I'm bringing all that up is because temple, temple, temple is in the context, okay? Jesus' intention was not merely to cleanse the temple, but to replace the temple, okay? That has recently been in view, and now he's saying that the temple is going to be destroyed. So naturally, they would ask, well, when's this going to happen? What's going to be the sign that it's happening? We want to know. We want to be ready. And one of the keys of understanding this difficult chapter is to see how Jesus does and doesn't answer their questions. Okay, so keep that in mind as we walk through. They want to know when, and they want to know what the sign will be, and Jesus seems to answer a different set of questions, okay? So, be that as it may, one thing is for sure, point number two, this is a tough passage. Hopefully you felt sorry for me or some empathy for me as you listen to me read through the chapter. Um, so, in fact, this, this can be a little discouraging when you start into your study for the week and, you know, commentary one says, 
In the Gospel of Mark, there is no passage more problematic than the prophetic discourse of Jesus on the destruction of the temple. And then you pick up another commentary, which actually I couldn't even read more than one because there's like way too many pages for... Anyway, whatever. Okay, another guy, James Edwards, he says, the absence of the original context of the various sayings and their indefiniteness combined to make this one of the most perplexing chapters in the Bible to understand for readers and interpreters alike. Oh, great. Here we go. So anyway, lots of ink has been spilled over the centuries in attempts to understand the many difficult sections in this chapter. There are a number of different views. We're not going to cover them all, but let's just kind of walk through the text a little bit and let me point out just a few of the questions that kind of beg for answers that oftentimes trip people up. So what I'm going to do is just give you the main issue, give you some common views, six of them, really quickly, and then we'll kind of walk through the text um, to try to see a few of the challenging portions um, as far as interpretation is concerned. So first, the main issue is this. What, like the main question you have to answer, what parts in this chapter refer to the destruction of the temple in AD 70 And what parts refer to the return of Christ at the end of the age? That's the big question, okay? There's lots of views out there. Here's just a few of the main ones. Some people view basically the whole chapter as the end of the age. This was kind of popular popular in the 90s, okay? Like all of it is future. None of it really referring to the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Some almost have the opposite view that the whole chapter is completely about the destruction of the temple and not really about the future at all. Um, Some hold that the two are kind of woven together the whole way through. That'd be a third view. Um, Here's where it starts to get, you know, a little hard to follow. Don't worry, we'll be done with this quickly. Um, So some hold that verses 1 to 31 are about the temple, and then only verses 32 to 37 are about the return of Christ. Okay? And then the last two views, some hold that, (laughs) again, you can look at this if you want, kind of just look down as I ring these things off, but just so that you realize there's multiple views out here, and a lot of them are good, solid believers um, disagreeing. 1 to 13 on the temple, 14 to 27 on Christ's return, 28 to 31 on the temple, 32 to 37 on the return. And then the majority view, which I think I would incline to, I think that's probably the cleanest um, interpretation, not because it's, because everybody holds it, you know, bandwagon thing, but rather I think because it handles the text best. Verses 1 to 23 on the temple, destruction AD 70, 24 to 27, Christ's return, 23 to 28 to 31, the temple, although that one could go either way, and then 32 to 37 on the return of Christ, okay? So here, let's just walk through the passage a little bit and zero on just a couple spots where the interpretation is, is tough, and I'll mention why. So first, look at verse 14. But when you see the, and you're going to want to have your Bible open and like following along today because otherwise you're going to get lost. So um, verse 14, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he or it, um, it's not clear in the Greek, but standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who's on the housetop not go down or enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. So what is the abomination of desolation? Has it already happened? How do you know what you're looking for? If this is in the future, what does it mean to flee to the mountains? Which mountains are we talking about? Like, is that metaphorical? Is it completely tied to AD 70? And if not, what does that mean for us? Like, should we start building bunkers and be preppers? And yet, verse 15 seems to make the prepper work a bit pointless, right? Because you're not supposed to go in and get anything. I'm not trying to be funny. I'm trying to say, like, we've got to take these things seriously, right? And it's got to make sense. 
Another challenge, look at verse 30. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Like verses 24 to 27 included? I mean, that sounds like the end of everything. So how is it that this generation won't pass away until all these things take place? I mean, Jesus hasn't come back yet, and all those people that he was talking to are dead. Is everybody with me here? Okay. So how can that be true? So there are more difficult sections, but we'll just leave it there for now. Okay. So most likely, like I said before, 1 to 23 refers to 70 AD. But the destruction of Jerusalem is like a paradigm for the future. So in that sense, everything can be helpful and applicable. It's not like all of that is in the past, verses 1 to 23, and has nothing to do with us. Okay? So, um, I guess I didn't mention how to understand this generation thing. Sorry about this. Um, Let me just because that that can be confusing, and we're not going to come back to this later, I don't think. Um, So they're in... uh, (laughs) I'm sorry, I just lost my spot. Um, The the generation thing. So how is that true that... um, Verse 30, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Okay? So generation in the Bible sometimes is used in a qualitative sense. What does that mean? Well, sometimes the Bible actually uses the term generation to speak not of like, you know, this group of people that are on earth right now that are going to die off in 30 years or whatever, but rather a group of people with similar characteristics, okay? Again, what do I mean? Well, a little bit earlier in Mark, back in chapter 8, do you remember this? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Do you see how an adulterous and sinful generation is present in every generation? Is that... Everybody tracking with me there? So it's describing the nature of the group. This happens in the Old Testament. It happens in the Psalms. So for instance, in Psalm 14. There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. Okay? The righteous people. Qualitative description. It can also... You see it also in Psalm 24. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And then down to verse 6. Such is the generation of those who seek him. This is what describes that group of people. So do you see how it's not a matter of, you know, this generation is alive, then they die off. It's this kind of people are actually present in every generation. So... If that's the sense, then what's being said in verse 30 of Mark is, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Um, If that's referring to unbelievers, then the point is, this sinful, adulterous generation will not pass away until all of these signs take place, and then they will be judged and done away with. Or it's referring to my people will be kept safe all the way until the end. They won't pass away. Do you see? Okay. Sorry. Like I said, there's a a lot to follow here. (laughs) It's a tough passage. As I said, that's kind of the point, right? Number two. All right. So point number three, um, AD 70 is a paradigm for the end, okay? So why is it that Jesus said all of this and put it together? Why would he combine the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and his return and do it in just such a, like, you know, hard-to-understand sort of way? 
Well, you're familiar with types in the Bible, right? Or maybe we could use the language of a paradigm. You know what a type is? Um, let me just give you a definition here. And we are going to get to some practical application. You just got to hang with me. Um, I know some of this feels like we're in class, but um, it's a challenging chapter. We need to make sure we you know, do some groundwork to get to faithful application. So a definition of typology, um, one scholar named Graham Goldsworthy, he, he says this, typology involves the principle that people, Moses or David, or events like the Exodus, or institutions like the priesthood or the temple, correspond to and foreshadow other people, events, and institutions that come later. Okay? Big definition, but it's actually pretty simple, right? So the Exodus is not just an event, it was an event, but it also becomes a type, a paradigm. So there's a better Exodus language that's used in Isaiah, for instance, of the return from the exile in Babylon. And then Jesus uses language to speak of his death as accomplishing an exodus. Just as they were slaves under the strong man and they were set free by the blood of the lamb, Jesus dies, sets us free from slavery, the domain of darkness. You know, he had to bind the strong man to plunder his house. Do you see? So, that's a type. It's a paradigm. Redemption is used this way. The temple is used this way, right? The lamb slain for atonement used this way. Well, the same thing here. AD 70, the destruction of Jerusalem is a paradigm, a type of the end of the return of Christ. In fact, we can set it up by looking at one of the most puzzling parts of this chapter. Look back at verse 14. So remember, Jesus doesn't really directly answer the disciples' question very well. You know, when is this going to happen and what are the, what's the sign? But this is the closest he comes to answering that question for a sign. Verse 14, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Okay, so first off, like, this isn't the first time this phrase is found in the Bible. In Daniel, it's found three times. We'll just look at one of them. Daniel 11:31 says this, Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Okay, it's found in Daniel 9:27 and 12:11 as well, but we won't look at those. So this abomination desolation was actually first fulfilled in 167 BC. Okay, there was this king, Antiochus Epiphanes. He was a Seleucid king. And he erected an altar to Zeus in the temple, like in the Jerusalem temple. And he sacrificed swine on that altar and unclean animals. You can read about this in 1 Maccabees, okay? So that event prefigures the destruction and desecration of the temple by Titus in AD 70. And it also likely prefigures the man of lawlessness that we read of in 2 Thessalonians 2. So it's like types that keep coming up. So you can see why he's putting these two things together. So it's most likely that verses 1 to 23, in this sense, were fulfilled in AD 70. We don't have to pray that Jesus won't come back in the winter. You see what I'm saying? I mean, Jesus is commanding them, pray that this won't happen in the winter. So have you been praying that Jesus wouldn't come back in the winter? No, okay? This is in reference to the destruction of the temple. We don't have to write letters to Christians in Judea to make sure they know how to flee to the mountains. So as horrible as the Jewish wars were, or the Jewish war was back then, AD 66 to 70, and it was horrible. It's estimated that over a million Jews were killed 
And Jerusalem was first attacked in AD 66. There was lots of resistance, which meant the Romans dropped the hammer with more force and ferocity. They eventually surrounded the city. They cut off the food supply. But interestingly, not, it, it appears that not many Christians died. Why? Because they obeyed the warning of Jesus. Eusebius, he's an ancient historian, he wrote that this was fulfilled in AD 67 when Christians fled to the mountains of Pella. So they fled, just like Jesus said, and they avoided this disaster. So in this sense, verses 1 to 23 were fulfilled, but that doesn't mean it doesn't have any relevance for us. The point is that the same kind of watchfulness and alertness and lack of anxiety, did you notice that? Don't be alarmed. That Jesus commands of those who would be present when these things would take place, that same orientation is what should characterize his people in every age until he returns. So from the fig tree, we should learn a lesson, whether it's in that generation or in ours, because the fall of Jerusalem is a preview. It's a paradigm of the end. And there's going to be cycles of difficulty and suffering and persecution over and over between the fall of Jerusalem and the return of Christ, right? Remember the birth pangs reference in, in verse 8? I mean, what happens with birth pains and contractions? They don't just hit once. Can you confirm that, Olivia? Okay. There's probably a few others that could confirm this. So they actually increase in frequency and intensity and duration until the baby's born. So we shouldn't be surprised that there are cyclical and painful contractions that happen over and over again throughout human history. And one day Jesus will return and it will be the end of the birth pains and there will be cosmic rebirth. All things will be made new and eternal life. Okay? So point number four, the end. So just as sure as the destruction of the temple took place, just as Jesus had said, so also the end will come. The temple was destroyed. He will return. Look at verses 24 to 27. But in those days after that tribulation, do you see how that little phrase makes sense of what I was saying? If 1 to 23 is referring to the destruction of Jerusalem, wouldn't it make sense for him to say, but in those days after that tribulation, we're talking about a, a new tribulation now, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect, his chosen people from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. So the end is near, and it's quickly approaching. And we have no idea, nor can we know, if it will be in our lifetime or a thousand years from now. No one knows the day or the hour. But we most need, what we most need is to come to Jesus for forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God. Then we are ready for him to come and judge the earth and make all things new. So if you have come to Jesus in repentance and faith, for you, there is now, therefore, no condemnation if you're in Christ Jesus. Then we can confidently say, when we read about his return here in 24 to 27, even so, come Lord Jesus. We eagerly await his appearing. We long for it. It's not a fearful prospect. It's a wonderful prospect because we're not going to face judgment. He took that for us on the cross we are going to be set free from all the suffering and brokenness in this world, and we are going to know fullness of joy forever at his right hand. So that's certainly part of how this text applies to us. But there's more application in the chapter, so let's consider finally point five. What are we to do? <laughs> so that was a lot of information, I know. 
return of Christ, the end times, learning the lesson of the fig tree, reading the signs of the times. It can kick up all kinds of questions and, and also fears and anxieties and, you know, theories and red string conspiracy board connections and should we create a timetable and try to crack the end time code? No, look at the end of Jesus' discourse. Not even the son knows the day or the hour. In his humanity, he willingly takes on limitations. You know, he got tired, he got hungry. But the real surprise in this chapter is just to notice, like, Lord, open our eyes, help us to see how you answer these questions. They want to know, when will these things be? What will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Jesus does not want us to fill out some four-color prophecy chart and try to figure out who in current events is the Antichrist or the man of lawlessness. He doesn't want us to be calculating years and days to see if we can figure out when he'll return. He wants us to be awake and alert and calm and faithful disciples in the present who are on mission with him and willing to pay whatever cost for that faithfulness. So just look quickly at the imperatives in this chapter. Look at verse five. Don't be led astray. Verse seven, don't be alarmed, which is kind of amazing because that's right on the heels of hearing about wars and rumors of wars. Verse nine, be on your guard. He says you're gonna suffer and he, he says you have a mission and a message to proclaim. Be on your guard. But quickly, verse 11, he says, don't be anxious. And that's in the context of there's gonna be betrayal and hatred and don't be anxious. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Verse 21, Repetition of a call to not be led astray. Verse 23, be on guard. And it's repeated again in verse 33. And then there's three calls to stay awake. Verse 33, 35, and 37. So James Edwards summarizes it well. He says, no one is either encouraged or commended for attempting to be an eschatological code cracker. This is folly. For even the Son of Man is ignorant of the end. Verse 32. The premium of discipleship is placed not on predicting the future, but on faithfulness in the present, especially in trials, adversity, and suffering. In other words, like how you treat your spouse is more important than filling out your prophecy chart. Hospitality to your neighbors how you treat that homeless person that you walk by. Not shrinking back when there's an opportunity to share the gospel. Those are more important than figuring out whether crypto has something to do with the mark of the beast. Seriously. So there is some tension created here because Jesus is trying to keep us on the greasy saddle of readiness and alertness without fretfulness. Isn't it so easy to be alert, but then to easily kind of freak out and be anxious? Or to not be anxious, but then you're kind of lackadaisical and you're not really alert. So let's just walk down through these imperatives and just apply them briefly for a few moments here. Like, what does it mean? Like, what's, what does this have to do with us? How do we apply this? What are we supposed to do? Well, don't be led astray. Yeah, so don't be led astray. First one, verses five and six, and then he repeats it in verses 21 and 22. Okay, you realize there were multiple messianic pretenders that came on the scene after Jesus' time. So there was one called Thutis. He's actually referenced in Acts 5. And he boasted of various signs and gained a following, but then, you know, came to nothing. There's another guy, Bar Kokhba, in AD 132-35. He made a claim to being the Messiah, swept many devout Jews into a revolt. There have been many since. 
And, you know, some of it is like, okay, are we really going to fall for the Kool-Aid, you know, like David Koresh or something like that? Well, there are many, there will be more, and we need to be aware and not be led astray. And we do that best by clinging to the real Messiah, clinging to the real Messiah. Like, don't miss how amazing and exalted a view of Jesus is presented in this chapter. I mean, it's amazing. Look at verse 24. This is Jesus, like, in the flesh and blood, a human being sitting beside these disciples, and he says, in those days after that tribulation, they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. I mean, this is part of what the blasphemy that got him killed. Like, who do you, are you kidding me? Did you hear that? Because the only person that comes in the clouds is God in the Old Testament. The Son of Man is coming in the clouds. That's Daniel 7. And that mysterious person in Daniel 7 is the one to whom everybody bows the knee and serves. And that's who Jesus is saying that he is. And he's saying also, like in the Old Testament, when God gathers his people who are scattered about, he usually brings them to Jerusalem. He brings them to Zion. He brings them, you know, to where he is. And now they all get gathered to him, to Jesus. He's the center of everything. He's the preeminent center of God's redemptive plan. And then he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. <laughs> Again, those are words that only God said in the Old Testament. And he says, you know, don't worry, I've told you everything in advance. <laughs> because he knows the future and he holds the future. So don't be led astray. Cling to the real Messiah who is sovereign and awesome in power and glory. Which makes sense that he would also say then, don't be alarmed. Be alert, but not alarmed. Again, that is totally countercultural and it's very much against kind of the grain of our soul, naturally. Wars, rumors of wars, I mean, anything that's fearful in here, get anxious and alarmed. Verse 7, don't be alarmed. Verse 11, don't be anxious. Why? Because God is absolutely sovereign. We can be confident that God's accomplishing his purposes. Listen, when, when he predicts the end, the disciples are like, when is this going to happen? What's going to be the sign? And he said, okay, stay awake and alert, but don't worry. I think we need to hear that. And some of us need to hear the stay alert more. Some of us need to hear the don't worry more. You know, don't worry. Don't be anxious. So we can be confident that God is accomplishing his purposes. No threat can ultimately shake us. Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. That's amazing. And it's super helpful because serious persecution is predicted here by Jesus. <laughs> Hatred, betrayal. That's cause for anxiety and alarm, right? So don't be led astray. Don't be alarmed. Third, be on your guard. Verses 9 to 10, and then again in verse 23. So rather than freaking out and fretting about what our cashless society means, we should be sharing the gospel and we should be expecting not to be liked by everyone. Jesus is saying, be on your guard. You're going to suffer and be persecuted. And you've got a message You've got a mission. Persecution and proclamation. That's what Jesus is preparing his disciples for. Be prepared. Let's calibrate our expectations. I mean, if we think that faithful path is just everybody's happy with us all the time, like we're not going to be very good evangelists. We're not going to be faithful witnesses. 
And again, this doesn't mean get, you know, cranky and nasty and offend people with your, you know, ugly personality. But we're going to be rejected and hated because of the gospel. And it needs to go to the nations. We've got to stay on mission. Verse 10, the gospel's going to be proclaimed to all the nations. Matthew 24, 14 says, this gospel of the kingdom shall be proclaimed to all the nations and then the end will come. There are lots of people groups that are yet to hear the name of Jesus. So we've got work to do. So stay on mission. Be prepared for persecution. So be on your guard, but don't be alarmed. So James Edwards says, the point is to rid believers of utopian fantasies and remind them that adversity and persecution are not aberrations. It's not strange. Aberrations of the Christian life, but rather the norm. But endure to the end and you will be saved. So this suffering and tribulation will not last forever. So don't be led astray. Don't be alarmed. Be on your guard. But don't be anxious. Like, it's amazing. Isn't it beautiful how Jesus goes back and forth? Don't be led astray. Don't be alarmed. Be on your guard. Don't be anxious. Like the threat of being brought to trial, I mean, that would certainly get me, you know, twisted up with anxiety. What am I going to say? You know, you're trying to anticipate everything that they're going to, don't waste any time worrying about that. By my spirit, I will be with you even to the end of the age. The spirit will give you what to say in those moments. Don't be anxious. Fix your eyes on Jesus and run the race that's set before you. So there's this call to endure. The one who has endured to the end will be saved. So we don't have to figure out every eschatological mystery. We do need to trust Jesus and run the race that's set before us with our eyes fixed on him. So last one, stay awake. The disciples in, just to anticipate something, do you know what happens at the end of chapter 14? The Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus is about to go to the cross and his disciples, he says, watch and pray. And they fall asleep, right? And then after he comes back from praying, he says, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So that's a picture. That's what it looks like to not stay awake spiritually. Again, Edwards, James Edwards says, watch is the final and most important word of the Olivet Discourse. The point of Mark 13 is not so much to inform as to admonish, not to provide knowledge of arcane matters, but to instill obedience in believers. Did you hear that? That's a really great summary of this whole chapter. Watch is the final and most important word of the Olivet Discourse. The point of Mark 13 is not so much to inform as to admonish, not to provide knowledge of arcane matters, but to instill obedience in believers. So this is a look at the future, in a sense, but it's for the sake of faithfulness in the present. It's not for speculation, but for preparation. It's not for anxiety, but for alertness. Jesus says, I want you to know the future. Or I don't, I'm not going to tell you much about the future, actually. I want you to live faithfully in the present. So let me close with this. I'm going to read a section from 1 Thessalonians 5, which is a beautiful application of this through the pen of the Apostle Paul. And then I'm going to read... the section called The Return of Christ and the Renewal of All Things, which is in our statement of faith. All right, so just listen prayerfully to this, Lord. What, have I fallen asleep? Like, am I kind of spiritually groggy? Am I just coasting? Am I drifting? Like, what does it mean for me to stay awake? Just maybe prayerfully ask the Lord to show you what the application is here. So 1 Thessalonians 5. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. 
while people are saying there's peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. And now this section summarizing what we believe. We believe in the blessed hope that at the end of the age, Jesus Christ will return to this earth personally, visibly, physically, and suddenly in power and great glory, and that he will gather his elect, raise the dead, judge the nations, and consummate his kingdom. We believe in the bodily resurrection of both the just and the unjust, the unjust to everlasting conscious misery in hell, and the just to eternal blessedness in the presence of him who sits on the throne and of the Lamb, in the new heaven and the new earth, the home of righteousness. We believe that the end of all things in this age will be the beginning of the never-ending, ever-increasing happiness of the redeemed as God shows the infinite riches of his glorious grace for the everlasting enjoyment of his people. God will be all in all, and his people will be enthralled by the unmediated sight of his ineffable beauty. We therefore eagerly await our Savior's return, longing for his appearing, living as pilgrims in this vapor-like life on earth, desiring our better homeland, where we will see our Savior face to face and be forever with our Lord. And if that's your heart, say it with me. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.